Shannon, I believe you said in an interview that you had a professor say to you one time, how is it that you can help all the other writers figure out their problems, but you, you can't do it for yourself? Is that what they said? <laughs> Something like that. That's exactly what he said. And of course, in that moment, it was soul crushing, right? You take it as a criticism. But actually, what it made me realize is the writer's room part, the workshopping part, was the part that I enjoyed the most. So it actually made me take a step back and say, hey, this is the part that I think is fun. I love reading other people's stuff and finding those problems. It's like a puzzle to me. I actually have had someone ask me before, like, why do you enjoy this so much? And it's like somebody who's trying to crack a math problem or someone who's trying to put a puzzle together. I love being able to read screenplays and figure out what the holes are and how to fix them. And actually by working on other people's stuff so often, it actually helps me with my stuff <laughs> as well. So it all came back full circle. So you were um, doing your undergraduate or? I was in getting my MFA, yes. Oh, your MFA at the Yes, time. at okay. Florida State University. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like how far in were you when this professor said this? Mm, good question. I think, I think I was in my last, well, at Florida State we do a two-year program, but it's two years straight. So that's fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer. So we don't graduate until August. So this could have been in the spring or it might have been in the summer, but of my last year, because we uh, had a program that was in the film school, the theater program, and the creative writing program. So we got to do television scripts, screenplay, feature screenplays, plays, and short stories. So we got to do all of it. So we spent time in all of those different programs and all those different buildings. So if I can remember correctly, I believe we didn't do our features until the last uh, part of our program. So this was like after I had basically spent almost two years being in that workshop kind of field and always being that person who like can see like, oh, okay, I see where this problem is or have you thought about this or you know, what's going on here? Um, so I guess by then he had kind of picked up on like, you do that really, really well, even though that's not what he said. It sounded like <laughs> he was giving a criticism, but that's what I took from it. And that's one of the reasons I decided to go into development when I got out to LA, instead of taking the traditional writer's route of uh, becoming a writer's assistant or a writer's PA and trying to get into a writing room. Have you always been like that? Because you said you were the youngest in your family? Yes, I have always been this way. Okay. It's so funny, somebody asked one of my friends, like, what was Shannon like in high school? And they said, just like this, but with penny loafers. And it's weird, because <laughs> I have on some loafers today. <laughs> um, but it's like, yeah, I've always been that kind of a mediator, kind of person, people come to me for advice and, and stuff, and I've just always been that way, no matter how young I was, and uh, people would always tell me, you're wise beyond your years, and then I found out that my name, Shannon, actually means little old wise one. Oh, wow. Yes, okay. so it's like, oh, okay, well then, you know, I guess nature versus nurture kind of thing, this is just who I am, you know? <laughs> Very interesting. So when this professor said that, how long did you get depressed and throw a pity party or maybe you didn't and then realize wait a minute this might actually be a gift. I think it was almost immediate like maybe right after class like I don't think I had this moment in the middle of class when he said it because he said it in front of everybody this was like in our program there were six writers so there are only six of us so it's not a room you know filled with people and again by then we had been together for two and a half years so we've already heard the criticism of everybody's work so it's an open space it's a free space so I didn't feel any kind of way because he said it in front of them um, but you know of course because all my life I wanted to be a writer all my life this is something that I wanted to do and all my life I've been told that I'm good at it and so to hear in this moment 
Not that you're not good at it, but you're really good at helping other people more than you are at helping yourself. Because when you're with your own story, you're internal with it. You know what I mean? There are things that you're going to be missing and you need those other sets of eyes and ears, which is why we do workshops in the first place. It's why writers workshop their stuff. So I don't, you know, definitely didn't mind being told like, oh, well you have problems, you know, in your writing. Of course I do, everyone does. Um, so it didn't take me long. I didn't, you know, wallow in it very long. Um, I don't know how I even got to the development place because at that age, I still didn't know what development meant. And it's weird because you go to film school, but they teach you all the creative part and you don't really learn the business part. You don't really learn about um, how the business side of the industry works. You're just learning all of your above the line. And at Florida State, greatly, we also learned the below the line positions. Uh, so we, I could do everything that's in, your, in the credits at the end of a script. I've done every single one of those things. <laughs> so that, it was a great program. Um, but somehow, some way, I stumbled into development. I don't know what I was Googling. This was you know, in 2008. I was, you know, so I don't know what I was Googling, but somehow, some way, I got to development. And I was like, oh, that. That is what I'm good at. That is something that I want to get into. What makes you great at story? Oh, great. That's a good question. What makes me great at story? Okay, so I think what makes me great at story is that I understand story. And there is a difference between having an idea and having a story. And I think a lot of people get stuck in the idea phase, which basically means you have an element to a story. Like you might have a great character. You might have a great situation for you to put, for you to put them in. There might be a great world that, has, uh, that you've started to uh, originate. But until you have every single one of those elements, you don't yet have a story. So me understanding what it takes to have a story helps me to help writers get to the place where they have a full story. And so I'm able to look at what they have and say, okay, so you've got a great idea, but now how do we make that into a story? How do we, make, how do we give this character some depth and then give them an actual goal so that they can have something to do during their story? Or how do we have this goal and give a character who would be great at actually making the goal happen or the total opposite, they could never make that goal happen. So now their journey is gonna be getting to a place of actually being able to reach that goal. So I'm always looking into it to see what elements do you have, what elements do you need, and how can we really flesh out what your full story is. And is that because sometimes they're actually writing a story that's loosely based on them? Or no, it, it, is sometimes, there so, oh. sometimes I, I have dealt with um, a lot of writers who are writing something that is based on truth and it's really easy to get stuck in that. And that's because when you're stuck in truth, you're stuck in trying to tell the truth. And I always say to them, go look at the actual films that are based on true stories and read that line underneath, based on a true story, <laughs> right? Which means that you can't get hung up in what actually happened because in most of our lives, every day is not entertaining. Even if you look at reality television, right? They have their cameras there for 12 hours a day and they're filming. But you at home are not watching 12 hours of them filming someone because there's not enough, there's not enough entertaining stuff happening. So the producers are going to take all of that footage and then go home and craft a story, which is why you may then have 
people dressed in one way having a conversation in the next five minutes, they're in another place having that same conversation, but we don't know those conversations could have been months apart, but they built the story for us because we have to understand what it is that we're following. And so the same thing is true when it's in scripted form, just because it's based on true story doesn't mean it's dramatic enough, doesn't mean it's entertaining enough. So we have to figure out what's the story that you're actually trying to tell, like what's the root thing, and then let's put all the elements to it regardless of whether it's the truth, <laughs> and then let's tell the story. But I think in general, writing is one of those things that a lot of people don't understand, has a skill to it, has a structure to it. So people wake up and say, I wanna be a writer because I have this great idea. And I give the example of if I were a 35 year old man who had never played football a day in my life, never. And then I woke up one day and said, I'm gonna go walk into an NFL team. People would look at me like I was insane. So I give that same look when people just wake up and say, I'm a writer because I have an idea. It's like, you still got to go build that muscle. <laughs> you still got to go, go to practice, right? By writing and writing and writing before you can get to a place where you can assume that you're going to have like a Shonda Rhimes kind of script, right? Just like, I'm not going to wake up one day and just be able to be in the NFL. So I think people kind of get stuck in that place because it's creative. And so they think, well, there are no rules. Anybody can be creative. Yes, anybody can be creative, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the elements that you need for a story. And that's a great point. And you know, you, you talked about, you know, based on a true story or whatever, based on, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's at least two films right now, great films. But when I went back and read and did some research on the stories that they were based on, some very major parts were left out. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to David about it. I'm like, why would they leave this out? And I think you were saying that it's because maybe it just didn't fit into didn't the arc fit, of the story. Yeah, it didn't fit into the story. Right. Mm -hmm. And the story has to be king. The writer cannot be pushing a narrative, even though sometimes you will watch things and obviously the writer is saying, this is what I'm trying to say, right? But some of the best art is giving you all of the information and let, letting you decide what they're trying to say, or you getting lost in, well, is it this or is it that? And you having to come up with your own decision about it versus the writer just sending you to it. So I often tell people, the characters have to be making decisions based on who they are, not based on who you are. Right? So you may need for your character to get from A to B. And so you're saying, well, I'm gonna have them do it this way. But would that character do it that way? Or are you just forcing them into doing something because you need to get them to the other end? So I'm hoping that that's the reason that they didn't put it in there, just didn't work into the, you know, to the arc of the story. And so if it was gonna push the story in a different direction or show you a different side of the person that you didn't want them to see, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if you establish a character as being one way and then they act in a way that's not within those bounds, you now have raised a question for your audience. So now your audience is going to be thinking for the rest of the film, well, what was that? Well, what does that mean? And how does that influence blah, 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 blah. And if it literally doesn't influence anything else and the character just absentmindedly acted without on the outside of themselves, that question never leaves. And now we might leave the theater going, there was just something about it, you know, like we can't, maybe we can't put our finger on it. Some people might be able to say, well, it's because they did this. And that's why it doesn't make any sense to me. Most people won't really be able to put their finger on it, but they'll be thinking to themselves, there's something there that I just didn't understand. And it's because that character made a decision outside of what you told us he or she was. So sometimes it's best to leave those things out unless you are purposefully showing me that. So I gave an example to, um, uh, I'm teaching an online class right now, and I gave an example to a student, and it said, if there's a woman who is ex-military, 
and she is fighting men, like physically fighting, right? And she fights one, she fights two, she fights three, she fights four. But when five comes, she, free she freezes and she runs. Then that tells me there's something there. Something's going on with this particular guy. She just fought four other guys. Why didn't she fight him? Now, if it never comes back, so I understand why she didn't fight him, I'm going to have that question for the rest of the time. I'm going to wonder what that was. And so that might have been the first breadcrumb to teach us something between them, something from her past, something about, something about him made her freeze and flee instead of fight. So everything within the film has to be working towards you know, that story. And if it's not, then just leave it out. And, that, and you're right, that was, it was two different films and that, and that was it. It, did, it made the character look different. Mm -hmm. Great point, okay, excellent. Everyone can write, but is everyone a writer? Great question. <laughs> everyone can write and everyone can be a writer. But I think the bigger question is, what part of the creative process are you trying to be a part of? And a lot of people don't know that there are so many other ways of being a part of the creative process in this particular industry that you don't have to be a writer. So I think because of the lack of knowledge, people know there's a director, they know there's a writer, they know there's a producer. Some people might not think past those three things, right? And so they're thinking to themselves, a lot of people think, well, I wanna be the writer because the writer is the person who's in charge. You know, They're the ones who are making the story. They're the ones who get to say what happens. Little do they know <laughs> that the writer is not in charge. The writer puts that stuff on the script, they may receive their paycheck, and they may not be a part of the rest of the process because there are other people who have creative jobs throughout the process. So I definitely think anybody can be a writer, but I do think that they have to want to hone the skill and they have to respect the art. Um, but, in, but other than that, some people, and this is what I enjoyed about going to Florida State's film school because we did get to learn all of the below the line positions. Some people get in and realize, I don't wanna be the director, I wanna be the camera operator. Everyone thinks that the camera operator is the director. Right, like if, you know, people who are at home who might just within a movie see a movie being made, they assume that the person who's actually behind the camera is the director. And it's like, no, the director's over there in the chair watching the monitor, <laughs> you know, so they can see the whole frame, etc. And some people really want to be the person physically out there with the camera. So I think if we just had more knowledge about all of the parts of the process and how you can be a part of that process, many people wouldn't choose writing. Because even if we just think about it in general, a lot of people just aren't aren't that great with the English language, period. A lot of people don't like to write, period. You know, Some people don't like to read. That's just not their thing. That's totally fine. But to then have this creative thing that you wanna get out, it's like, yeah, well, you can be a non-writing producer. You can be the person who has the ideas and then hire someone who can actually do the physical writing because they've you know, been able to master that skill in some kind of way. But I think it just really comes from a place of having ideas and not knowing how they can fit into the overall puzzle of the industry and have a creative voice. So then going back to that hypothetical person that wakes up one day and says, I wanna be a writer, I have mm -hmm. a really cool story. Mm -hmm. Everyone's gonna love this. They need to know that that's not exactly how it works and it takes a lot of time. And what do you say to that one that you said the person at home watching TV and maybe they did have an incredible life and they mm -hmm. overcame a lot of challenges, but they're not really writers. Yeah, I think it's hard to make people understand that they're not writers, right? I think just like with the example of thinking of an athlete, people think they know what athletes look like 
People think they know what the skill sets should be if you're an athlete. Some people have athletic bodies. You might not know what kind of sport they play, right? But they walk into the room and you're thinking, oh, you're probably some kind of athlete. With writers, there's no, there's no thing like that because anybody can be a writer. So I say, if you have an idea, respect the craft enough to then go hone your skill. That doesn't mean you have to go to film school. Film school is not for everyone. I enjoyed film school because I like learning in a classroom structure, right? But I could have had that same education by just going and being on some sets. I think all writers should PA at some time. All writers should be on set so that you can see what it takes to get done what you're asking people to do, right? So you can understand what budgets actually look like when you're writing your car chase scene and you know writing your action scenes and understanding that needing blood and needing prosthetics and needing stunt doubles and needing all these people, all of that is gonna cost money, right? So just hone your skill, hone your craft. There are online courses, I teach online courses, I give feedback on, on screenplays, because I'm not saying don't try, you definitely should try. But within that process, get some feedback and get better. One of the things that I tell people is, if this is actually your baby, if you think this, this is the best idea, idea ever, don't practice on your baby. <laughs> practice on some other idea so that you can get good and then write your baby because you want people to take your baby seriously. The other thing is I tell people, stop calling it your baby. It's not your baby. At some point, you're going to have to sell your baby <laughs> and you don't want to, right? So realize that it's art and it's there for other people to participate in the process and on your side of it, if you're trying to be a professional writer, because not everybody is trying to be a professional writer. Some people just have an idea and that's the thing they want to get made. Some people actually want to have writing as their profession, meaning this is how they make money, this is how they feed their families. And those people are the ones that really have to let go of the baby because you just need to be writing things so that you can be making income, right? So your baby, somebody else's baby, whoever's baby, you'll write whatever you need to write so that you can have a consistent income. But for those people who just have an idea and that's the thing that they wanna get made, do the work, make sure that it's good stuff, Find some other people to come in and be a part of the process. I tell writers all the time, if you're not a director and you don't want to be a director, go find someone to direct your, <laughs> to direct your script. Because if you're going to take the time to put in the money and the energy of actually making the film, then you want that product to look good. So what if you write a good screenplay, but you don't get the people necessary so that you can make it look good on the screen? And then now the thing that you have to represent your screenplay is not representing it very well. Right? And the same thing is true. If you're a director, but you're not a writer and you don't want to learn how to be a writer, go find one of your writer friends who has a script and then you can direct that. They're so This is a collaborative process. It's a collaborative effort. And as writers, we a lot of the times get stuck with thinking it's just me and my computer, right? It's like, well, no, there's so many other people who participate in this process. So anybody who has an idea can write it. Whether it will be good, whether it will fit the structure, whether it's something um, that is uh, a part of the art, you know, because I, I get stuck in that place of like, just respect the art, you know, go out there and get the information that you need so that you can have something that's great on the page. And when you hear certain code words or you see a demeanor in someone, how do you know that, ooh, this is one of these people where we're gonna have to have a talk because they're too precious with their material? <laughs> Let's see, I think, I think the code words are as simple as they're always talking about my and well, when I get there, they'll know and I'll tell them and blah, 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 and I always have to say to them, you might not be there. Like, you just physically, might not be there. Just understanding the, especially in features, they may literally 
pay for your script and send you on your way and never ask you another thing, right? Um, so just explaining to them the writer's place in the process. Like I even have a, a Hollywood pyramid that I show people that I made and I show them who is king. The studios are the king, the networks are the, are the king, production companies are not far under them. Then you have all of the executives, you have all of the above the line people and the writer is way down at the bottom because they are just the first part of the process. And after their part of the process is over, everybody else has to do theirs. Right. It's one of the reasons that no one invites the writers, not no one, but people don't often invite the writers to the set because they don't want to hear the writers going, well, this is what it was supposed to be and blah, blah, blah. And now they're giving notes. And it's like that part of the process is the director's part of the process. He or she is now bringing his or her vision to your script. So you don't know what direction it's going in now. And now you're invited to set and you're on set giving notes to actors and talking to all of these people. And you're now out of line. You've now stepped outside of your bounds. So it's really easy to see when people don't know that that's how the process goes. Um, so I always just say, hey, I just want to give you what the, what the, uh, help you set your expectation of what this will be. And it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. There are exceptions. There are people who write their films and they're also able to be producers and be there along the way. So it's possible. Does it happen often for someone who's writing their very first film? Not at all. You know, and that's just a part of the a part of the business. And so a lot of people don't have the knowledge of the business. And that's one of the reasons why I exist as a script consultant so that you can call me and ask me and I can just tell you what it is. And again, anytime I give people advice, I always tell them somebody did it another way. Like this is not the kind of industry that has a step by step. This is how you make it kind of thing. Not for actors, not for writers, not for anybody. Everybody gets there in a different way. So it's totally possible that you can get that, get there the way that you want to get there. But generally speaking, this is how things work in the industry. Is it true that beginning writers need the most help with structure? No. Oh, you don't all, think so? I think all writers need help with structure. Oh, okay. I think there are writers right now who are employed in writer's rooms, who have sold features before, and they need help with structure. <laughs> I definitely do. And the way that you know that that's true is because there are rewriters who have jobs. A lot of the times when someone sells a feature, just because they sold it doesn't mean that's the way it's going to make it onto the screen, right? So they may buy it because they like the idea. They may buy it because they like the characters. They may buy it because they like the world. They may buy it because they like you. You never know. Things happen. But before that thing goes to the next round, they're going to hire someone else to come in and tighten it up to come in and restructure, to come in and give it what it needs. And this is something that I do as well. I work with a lot of writers who have something great on the page, but structurally speaking, it's not hitting the beats that it needs to hit. Like when you, um, if your script gets on someone's desk, finally makes it in, they're gonna have their intern or their assistant read it first. Somebody who may or may not have ever written a thing in their lives, somebody who may or may not have a degree, someone who may have just gotten there day one, and they're gonna be the people who read your script. Um, they're gonna have to read the entire thing because that's their job, and then they're gonna write coverage on it, which means they're gonna say, this is good, this is bad, this is ugly, these are what the characters are. Executive, you should or you should not read it. That's basically what the coverage is going to do. The executive will then say, okay, they're gonna take it, and because they have eight million scripts on their desk, they're going to give it about 10 to 15 pages to hit particular beats before they decide to continue to read. 
there's kind of like a, a industry standard of you got to give it at least the 10 or first 10 or 15 pages. Some people, including myself, can give it three pages and know this isn't going to, this is not going to do what it's supposed to do. But because I'm a script consultant, I almost have to read, you know, everything. <laughs> so I usually can't just give it a few pages. I have to read everything so that I can give detailed notes about what's going on. But as far as an executive goes, they know what they're looking for. First of all, wherever it is they're working has a brand. So if they're at Fox, they're not going to buy what CBS would buy. They're not going to buy what NBC would buy. They're not going to buy what OWN would buy. They each have their own brand, their own audiences and things that they're looking for. So outside of looking for those story beats, they're also looking for, but would we put this on our channel? Because regardless to how great it is, if it's not something that would be on their channel, they're not going to continue to read it. It's a waste of their time to continue to read it. Um, so with that being said, structure matters as far as Hollywood goes. If you're an independent writer, an independent producer, independent director, you can write what you wanna write and make what you wanna make because it's your money. But as far as Hollywood goes, there are particular things that they're looking for. If we haven't hit that inciting incident around page 15, they're not gonna keep reading. When I used to teach at Florida State, I taught uh, intro to film. And the whole class was we would watch films and then they would have to analyze them in the written form. And I would always say, if I get your essay, and I haven't hit the thesis statement. I would even give them the whole page, even though we all know thesis statement should be in the first paragraph. But if I get to the bottom of page one and I haven't gotten to the thesis statement, I'm not continuing to read because you're making me guess what your paper is about. I shouldn't have to guess what it's about. You should tell me this is what this thing is about or this is what I'm going to try to prove to you or whatever. That's what the inciting incident is for the screenplay. For you to give me the information of this is what this thing is about. This is what my character is going to be doing for all of act two, or this is what goal my character is trying to reach in the resolution. If I can't know that by page 15, I'm not going to keep looking for it, <laughs> you know? And so that's why structure matters. And there are some people who don't, who, who write, who naturally write well and don't know that they're writing in that structure. And then there are some people who have great ideas and great characters and great worlds. And the reason that the things aren't selling or aren't doing what they need to do is because they don't have any structure. So I think everybody can learn from structure, every single person. Some people, the people who have mastered it are those people who are consistently making money as writers. Because if you understand structure, you can write anybody's story, not just your own. And a lot of us think that being a writer is all about writing our own ideas. And there are some people who get to that level that they're writing their own ideas. But most professional writers, people who are consistently getting paid, are people who are being hired by producers to write for them, or hired to do rewrites on somebody else's stuff, or someone who can jump from writer's room to writer's room to writer's room and continue to go up in, um, in rank in those writer's rooms because they can hear someone else's story and because they know structure, they can make it happen. So structure is just gonna be helpful all the way around. Is there one structure? upon which almost every story will fit into? There are several different types of structures and it depends on what kind of story you're telling. So we have three act structure and that's the one that almost everybody knows. And in my opinion, three act structure is the best to know because even if you're writing in five acts, all it means is that you're stretching out your three acts. <laughs> right? Or if you're writing in two acts, you're condensing your two acts. Or for those, those people who are into theater, if you're writing a one act play, your three acts is happening in one act. <laughs> so understanding three act structure, which basically means you pick, you spend one act on setting up, you spend one act on actually getting 
to the, to the goal and you spend another act on saying, hey, I got the goal, now what? And that's basically what, the stru what structure is. So a lot of people will write pages and pages and pages of activity, but activity is not action, right? Action is intentional, right? People are taking intentional steps towards a goal. Activity is just anything. I went to a party, I sat in my house, I watched TV, I did X, Y, and Z. But if that isn't attached to you actually trying to reach a goal, then what am I watching? I'm watching the 12 hours of a reality TV show when someone just sat there all day and filmed, let's say they were filming us right now. What would they be seeing? Just you sitting here, right? <laughs> but what does that mean? However, if they were filming about how, what it takes for you to make your show happen, now this becomes an intentional part of the story. But if the story is about you going to the grocery store today, then why would we need to be showing this? <laughs> right? So yes, there is one particular structure that if everybody learns, it's going to be helpful to you. But most features are written in three acts. Some one hour dramas are written in three acts. Some are written in five. And uh, in comedies, half hour comedies, those can be written in two acts or also three acts, depending upon what kind of comedies they are. Single camera comedies are usually done in three acts. Um, Multi-camera comedies might be done in two. So what I say to people is, going back to that homework, going back to honing your craft, is read scripts that are close to the script that you're writing so that you can see what kind of structure and what kind of format they use. Because even the format can change um, from um, features to TV from one hour to half hour. Um, so in order to know that, and those are those things where it's like, well, I'm gonna walk in on my, day, on my first day and be showrunner. It's like, yes, but you don't know that there's a different format between half hour uh, multi-camera comedy and a single camera comedy. That's information that you should probably know if you're gonna run the show, right? And the information is out there because now we live in 2020 and there's YouTube, and there's Instagram, and there are people who are giving the information away for free. So when people don't take the opportunity to use, utilize those resources, then that's when I go back to, you gotta respect the craft. Does the protagonist always need a character arc? In my opinion, yes, but it doesn't have to be a big one, right? So for example, this is TV, so it's a little bit different. In TV, the, the arc can be like this big, right? It doesn't really have to go anywhere. If we think about House, the biggest thing for him is that he's like a you know, curmudgeon kind of guy, like he's grumpy. I don't need to see him become joyful by the end of the series, <laughs> <laughs> right? But there may be something else in him that is gonna change tiny bit by tiny bit by tiny bit as the series goes. Whereas if you look at a show like Scandal, uh, Olivia Pope starts with the white hat. By the end of the series, she's got a black hat, right? But that we, we get all of that time to see her grow. Uh, so what I say to people is, most of the time your protagonist is moving not because they just have an external goal, but because the internal goal is what really needs to be fixed. And as they're going along their journey and hitting complications, that thing is going to be fixing the inside. So even if they never reach the outside, they still have a great conclusion. And that doesn't have to always be, you know, a 180 degree kind of turn. Again, I don't want to, if I like you because you're grumpy, like, oh, here's a great example, up. Right? If you think of the Disney movie, the, the Pixar movie, Up, he begins as a grumpy man, he ends as a grumpy man, but he's now a grumpy man with a friend. Right? He's now allowed himself to be open for love. The journey was, I need to get this house 
to whatever falls and whatever falls it is, I can't remember, right? Need to get the house to the falls because that's where I need to be so that I can feel good enough because I told my wife I would do this and I didn't while she was alive. That's what it's about. Him feeling like guilty and bad because he didn't do what he promised his wife. That's why he won't talk to anybody. That's why he's grumpy. That's why he won't sell his house. That's why he won't do any of those things. And then here comes this kid who is a complication for him. But because he's now responsible for the kid, he has to eventually choose between house and kid. So does that mean if I don't get my house to where I said I was gonna get it to, that I didn't keep my promise to my wife? Or would my wife also be okay with me saving the child from dying, <laughs> right? So by the end of it, we now see this same grumpy man, he's got the same look on his face, <laughs> but he shows up to this kid's pinning, and now we know he's changed. That's it, it can be something just that subtle. It doesn't have to be a whole 180 degree kind of turn. But also, if you're thinking about the inside, it's easier to show how that inside of you may change than it is that outside. Do you believe that writers should stay with one genre? I'll tell you this, I always tell my writers to pick a lane. And it's not because it's what I believe, but it's because of what Hollywood believes. Hollywood likes to put people in boxes, right? It's the same thing with actors, right? If you get in as a comedian, it's gonna be hard pressed for them to give you a dramatic role. Doesn't mean you can't do it. <laughs> it's just that the industry in itself, when it comes to writers, is really divided into separate places. Like there are feature agents and feature execs. There are TV agents and TV execs. There are going to be showrunners who deal with drama, showrunners who deal with comedy. They usually don't um, reach into each other's lanes. And because of that, when they meet you as a new writer, they need to know what lane you're in so they can know where to send you. That's like one of the just most foundational things. The other thing is, imagine someone coming to your door and trying to sell you a product. And while they're trying to sell you that product, they're also talking about the other products that they have. Now you've got all these choices to make and you're thinking, okay, I'm overwhelmed. This is a lot, thank you for your time. Whereas if they had just come with their one broom, showed you everything that the broom did, you still might not want it, but at least you understand what the broom is about, right? So it's the same thing when you come in as a writer. If I come in and I say, so I do documentaries, I do features, I do comedy, and sometimes I do drama, and I really like horror, then the people are saying, you don't know what you like, and you're probably not great at any of it. Simply because even if you think about just spreading yourself thin, right? Being good at everything, but a master of nothing. And it's your job to sell that you're a master of this one thing. Also because they then, you're never talking to the person who's giving you the job. They always have to go into another room and sell you and pitch you. They can't do that if they don't know who you are or what you are or what lane you are. If they go into the next room and say, yeah, she's a comedy person, but she does horror then the person in the next room is gonna go, what am I supposed to do with that? Versus if you come in and you say, I'm the horror person, or I'm the gritty horror person, or I'm the, cause sometimes people do make funny horror things, you know, I'm the, you know, the quirky horror person or whatever that thing is, but you're selling that is like, this is what I am, and my writing samples show this is what I am, because sometimes we'll say, this is what I am, and your writing samples show something else, right? So those two things have to match. 
But if you can come in and say, I'm the horror girl, or I do the quirky horror stuff, then again, going back to being a consistent writer is getting all of those random gigs. Now somebody in the other room says, you know what? I just got this quirky horror script and it just doesn't feel quite right. Maybe I can hire her to come take a look at it. Now you got a job because they were able to sell you as that thing. If you come in and you say your five things, you can end up anywhere. Like for example, you might like to watch drama, but you like to write comedy. But you went into the room and you said, oh, I love drama and I love comedy and I love this and I love that. So now they're pitching you to drama showrunners and they decide, okay, yeah, let's bring this person in. And now you're stuck writing drama (laughs) for however long when this is not what you wanted to be writing at all. But that's what you went into the room talking about, right? So I say pick a lane simply because you have to be able to sell yourself and people can understand when you have decided I am a master of this particular thing. With that being said, once you've proven that you're a master in that thing, they'll let you do whatever you want. So it doesn't mean you're not allowed to write both. It doesn't mean you can't do both. It just means pick one, master it, get in the door, and then say, hey, I also have this other thing. (laughs) And then now they're more willing to listen because you've already proven yourself. So if Shonda Rhimes walks in right now and says, I'm gonna make a feature, no one's gonna say no. She's already proven herself that she knows what she's doing, even though she may have never made a feature before. I don't know, maybe she has, but we don't know her as a feature writer, right? But she still may walk in and say, I wanna do a feature, and they'll allow that now because she's already proven herself. So the same thing is true for any new writer. Pick a lane so that you can master it, get get your foot in the door, prove to them that you know how to show up, you know how to write, you understand structure, you can get the thing done, and then pull out whatever other things you wanna pull out of your hat. And nine times out of 10, because they now trust you and know you, they'll allow you to move wherever it is you wanna move. What if someone says, well, I don't wanna label myself? Then I would say they're in the wrong industry. (laughs) (laughs) This is an industry of labels. You have to pick one. And if you don't, they'll pick one for you. That's the thing about it, right? So you can go into a room and say, well, I don't wanna label myself, I can write anything. They're still gonna put a label on you because they have, to, they have to sell you, they have to do their part. I mean, and the only way they can do that is by using descriptors and adjectives. <laughs> so at some point, there's gonna be a label put on you. So if you don't choose it for yourself, they will choose it for you. And then you can still end up going down a road that you didn't wanna go down because they've decided, well, I don't have any other information, so I'm gonna read your, your, your specs and read your samples, and then I'm going to assume that this is what you write and this is what you like to do, and now I'm gonna send you down that path. And then you're gonna be wondering, well, why don't they ever put me up for any comedy things? Because you gave them three drama scripts. So they just assumed, and then they'll, it, the labels get even smaller. If you send in three drama scripts and each of them have a teenage girl as the protagonist, they will assume you write teenage girl drama scripts. So now they're only gonna put you up for stuff for teenage girls in drama, you know, because the point is you're supposed to be mastering a voice. You're supposed to be mastering an experience. You're supposed to be the, the expert of this experience, right? And so if you don't come in with your own label, they're gonna give you one. What makes for a good story? Hmm. I personally think anything can make for a good story. Most people will not agree with me, but because I think structure matters, I think anything can make a good story. Also, any of us have gone to the movies and seen something really terrible, you know, and we're like, how did that get here, (laughs) right? So that means there's an audience for everything. I don't have to like it. Somebody else is at home looking at it right now thinking it's the best thing they've ever seen. So because there are so many, you know, it's, a, it's subjective. It's a subjective thing. So when I work with writers, I always tell them, don't ask me if I liked it. 
It doesn't matter. It just really doesn't. Also, I'm pretty hard to please. <laughs> so I almost never like anything. And I don't mean like it means that I dislike it. It's just I'm one of those people who like lives on seven. You know, I'm just always cool. So I don't ever really get excited about stuff. So it's like I can read it. I go, oh, it's good. And they're expecting me to go, oh, my God, it was great. But it's like that's just not my personality. So I would say don't ask me about if I thought it was good or not because that part doesn't matter. I may not be your audience. I may be your audience and I still don't like it. I see stuff on TV or in theaters all the time that I don't like. So this is not about what I like. This is about if you are executing the story to, the, to your best ability. If you're executing it in a way that everyone who is gonna like this particular thing understands the story you're gonna tell. Because at the end of the day, you can't stand outside of every theater in the United States of America and say, hey, so on this part, this is what I really meant. <laughs> you know, hey, this is, did you understand that part? Okay, I, I figured people wouldn't understand that. So let me explain to you how it go. You can't do that. So we got to make sure all of that's on the page. Execution is what's going to matter more than whether I like it or not. So I think that any idea can become a story and that story can be considered good by someone. Is there a movie or TV show that gets you to eight or nine? <laughs> Let's see. Um, I'm usually pretty moved by television. I like television. Um, so let's see, I like Queen Sugar. I like The Shy. I loved Brothers and Sisters on ABC. I could rewatch, and I'm not a person who likes to rewatch things. I will rewatch the entire series of Brothers and, Se Brothers and Sisters. Friday Night Lights is one of the best TV shows ever made <laughs> for me. Uh, also, I'm from Texas, so it right. just, you know, when the main title sequence, sequence would come on, sometimes I would cry. Oh, wow. Like it just, it moved me. <laughs> and it's also something about, um, it feels like Texas. So it feels like home. Like even like small things that would be happening in the background, it's like, that's so Southern. That's the kind of thing you would definitely see traveling through a town like this, you know? And so I appreciate shows that know how to make the city a character. So that's another reason why I like The Shy. I'm not from Chicago, so people from Chicago may feel totally different. But when I watch it, I feel like this feels like it's that. Whatever that thing is they're trying to sell me, I'm into it and I feel that. The same thing with The Wire. This feels like this is Baltimore <laughs> to me. Um, and actually having lived on the East Coast and lived in Washington, D.C. and gone down to Baltimore a few times, I was in some of those areas. And as soon as I got into those areas, I was like, yeah, like this is what I saw on television, and I could feel that through the screen. Um, some of my favorite movies, I love The Quiet Place. It's actually something I used to teach in my classes with because it, it screams show don't tell because they, don't act, they actually don't have very much dialogue, which means they ha you have to be able to show me in the screenplay what you're trying to get these people to portray instead of telling me. So it's a great, uh, a great script to use for that. Um, I like Enemy of the State. <laughs> with Will Smith. I think that was in like 1998 that it came out. So there are things that I definitely like um, and things that definitely move me. But just like on a daily basis when I read, I read so many screenplays and I try to explain to people like it's really hard to have a unique idea. We're all living in this same world. We're all watching the same news. We're all dealing with the same kind of things. If you grew up in the United States of America, everybody went to elementary school and then middle school and had some kind of junior prom and then went to high school and had some kind of prom. We all have been doing those kind of things. So a lot of the times we're telling the same story. The thing that makes it unique is that it's your experience, right? So that goes back to, well, is it a good idea? I mean, maybe. If 
five people have written it before. So what's what are you going to be able to bring to it that makes it stand out and make it not the same story all over again? Or make it so that it's so good that they make it anyway. Like if you remember, I can't ever remember the name of both of the movies. One is No Strings Attached and the other one I think is something about friends. But one of them starred Justin Timberlake and one starred Ashton Kutcher. Came out in the exact same year and they were the exact same movie. The exact same movie. So I say to people, if 100 people had the idea, maybe 25 of them are gonna write it, maybe 10 of them are gonna finish it, maybe three people are gonna get in the room to actually pitch it. And this time, two of them got made and at the exact same time. So. I always tell people, don't, don't be concerned if it's not that unique of an idea. It obviously doesn't have to be. It's really just about how you execute it and, and what your experience is that's gonna make it this much unique. So you love the TV show Friday Night Lights? Yes. Did you like the movie? I actually probably saw the movie once okay. and never thought about it again. Okay, and then The Blind Side? And The Blind Side, I enjoyed that. Sandra Bullock was okay. awesome. Um, but yeah, with Friday Night Lights, the movie, I wasn't very moved, but the TV show, Interesting. I don't even know what made me watch the TV show, to be honest with you. Maybe because it was in Texas. Maybe that was the only reason I was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. I have no idea, but I watched it and I was immediately hooked. And I usually have to give a show three episodes before I'm actually into it. Um, this one got me on the pilot, pilot episode I was in. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the opening you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those main title sequence. Yeah. It's great. What makes a great storyteller? Hmm. I think what makes a great storyteller is someone who is open to the collaborative process. Open to knowing that, as we're taught when we're little, two heads are better than one, but for whatever reason we, come, we become adults and we wanna do everything by ourselves. Um, so I think great storytellers understand they're part of the process. They understand that other people can bring stuff to the process. Um, they're open to utilizing what's happening in the world around them. So for example, I traveled for a decade as a touring artist, so I was always in different places. So that means I met different kinds of people, I saw different kinds of places, and we never really pay attention to the fact that because I was in that area or around those people, I probably picked up on some new information. So we're always told to write what we know and that automatically becomes so narrow to us when we think about, well, how can I write what I know? But it's like, if you consider the places that you've been, the people that you've met, uh, what your spouse may do for a living, what your parents may have done for a living, what your uh, friends may be doing, what they may be going through in their personal lives. If you were a child and you watched how mom and dad did X, Y, and Z, all of these things are things that you know <laughs> and therefore things that you can write about. So you just have to be open. Um, storytellers have to be open to notes. <laughs> That's a, I, I think we all know as artists you have to be open to criticism. But criticism is different from notes. And a lot of the times writers aren't able to tell the difference. They're thinking the executives are coming in here to steal my joy, <laughs> you know, and to, to rain on my parade. And really they're coming in with a totally different part of the process. They are coming in from a totally different spectrum to look at your script. And nine times out of 10, if they have a note, all that means is there's a problem here. You can decide to fix it in any creative way, sometimes they will tell you, no, this is what it has to be. And that's usually because, again, they're coming from a different place. They may know something about the location that you don't know. They may know something about permits that you don't know. They may know something about the actors that you don't know. They may have information that, again, if they're pushing towards their brand, 
and whatever it is that you're writing now seems to be taking them out of that brand, then they're going to be saying, all right, nope, let's take this out. Let's, you know, do this or do that. But I think as creatives, we will then take that personally and think that that's criticism instead of understanding they're doing their part on the team. You're doing your part on the team. So don't take it personally or negatively. Just realize that they're coming in it, uh, coming into the situation from a different perspective. So storytellers have to be open to that too. So as much as we have to respect the art, we also have to understand that there's a business side of the art. And a lot of the times that means you may have to compromise your art to the people who are paying for it, which again goes back to that whole baby thing, right? It's like the point of you writing it is so that other people can see it. The only way other people are gonna see it, unless you have your own money, is if someone else buys it. And once they buy it, it's now theirs. So they're the ones who get to say when, what direction it goes into and what schools it's gonna go to and all these other things, right, when you consider your child. So just being open to understanding as a storyteller that there is an art side and there is a business side, I think that's really big. Have you seen someone who has such amazing talent as a writer, but the notes process ruin their career because they were never able to be collaborative? Yes, um, <laughs> but I think it probably happens more often than we really know. Uh, uh, being a being on a writing staff means that a you're on the staff right now, but b you have to wait to see if the show's going to get get picked back up. If it does, it doesn't mean that you're automatically picked back up. And one of the ways that you cannot get picked back up is you don't take notes well. <laughs> right. So some people are often not getting picked back up on the next season simply because they couldn't take notes well. And again, especially if you're on a staff, you're here to write someone else's baby. So your opinion matters, but you writing what you're being asked to write matters more. <laughs> right. So there are there are people who just need it's like a learning curve for them. So I can't necessarily say that they never worked again. Maybe they learned from that and they were able to work again. Um, there have also been um, times when people in authority are uh, kind of mismanaging how they're doing the writing um, by attaching themselves to someone else's writing uh, in that kind of room process without realizing that the writer is doing the writing. Just because you're giving notes on the writing doesn't make you a writer. And so a lot of the times, depending upon where their producers or showrunners or directors or whatever it is that they are, they may be getting confused in that part of the process. And now they attach themselves to the writing. And I know that there have been people who have lost their jobs because of things like that as well, simply because that's what their job is. This is what your job is. Just because they work together doesn't mean that they're now teams or co-writers or you know, cold, whatever. So that can happen as well. But that again goes back to people not really understanding how that part of the industry works. And some people have to learn by trial and error. And it happens that way. Oh, okay. So I, yeah, I didn't know that. I never would have thought of that. So it's not just the writer possibly getting hung up on these notes. It's also the note giver not realizing their role as well. Mm -hmm. okay. Their role as well. It's like, you're the note giver. That's a part of your responsibility. That doesn't make you a writer. Because note givers may also give suggestions. Right. And so now they're thinking, well, I gave X, Y and Z suggestion. So now it's you and I who have written this thing. And it's like, no, writers are the ones who are physically writing. Right. If you are a producer, a showrunner or a director when it comes to features. Right. You may be adding 
possibly. But if you're not doing, and the WGA has rules about if you didn't do a, a particular percentage, I'm not going to try to figure out, remember what the percentage was. But if you didn't do a percentage of the physical writing, you cannot put your name on as a writer. Now in features, things are going to be a little different anyway because the writer is taken out so early in the process, right? So there could be other people who have come in and actually done more writing. And there's still a, per a percentage of writing that they have to do before their name gets attached. But there's a difference in how their name gets attached. It might say, if you see the word A-N-D, then that means this was an extra person who got attached. If you see the ampersand sign, that means they're a team. That means they wrote it together. Me and this person wrote this script together. If you see the word and, it means they wrote it and then somebody else came in and put their part and somebody else came in and put their part. So you might see one person's name and then 50 other ands, <laughs> you know, because all of these other people came in and they put in enough of a percentage for them to be getting a credit. Some people who are rewriters are simply ghostwriters and they never get a credit but they might've come in and, 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 and done some writing. But then once that writing process is over and now that script is in the hand of the director, he's gonna, he or she is gonna go in and change up all kinds of stuff. Doesn't make him or her the writer. So you're rarely gonna see suddenly just because now that the development is over and it's in production and the director is now doing things with the script, it's not gonna necessarily now throw his or her name on there because he or she is doing what, what he or she has to do in order to make the production happen. And they may be making a lot of different creative you know, um, suggestions and creative changes, but it doesn't make them the writer. So again, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, that's it. <laughs> you gotta know what your lane is and stay in it. Does a good story have to be believable? I think it depends on the tone, right? So if it's a slapstick comedy, nobody expects you to believe it, right? If it's a drama, then there's gotta be something that's relatable enough for me to think that this is possible. But if it's fantasy, then the, the, what, what relates to what I know as a, a foundation is gonna be blown into smithereens because the whole world might be something new and something different that I don't know anything about. So I don't necessarily think it has to be believable, but I, what I do think is it has to be believable that your protagonist can reach the goal that you've set up for them to reach. So even if the world itself isn't believable, even if the goal itself isn't believable, but if I believe that this person I'm investing in can actually get that thing done, then I'm probably gonna stay for the journey. Was there a film that you've seen where you just didn't feel that it was believable, even though the world seemed like it was in reality, mm -hmm. for whatever reason the story just wasn't hmm. convincing enough? I can't say off the top of my tongue. I know I've read some scripts that way, definitely. Uh, but I can't say off the top of my head a screenplay that I felt wasn't believable. I think it happens in TV a lot, um, uh, and that goes back to structure. I think a lot of the times TV shows may get picked up, and we kind of know kind of where we want it to go. Sometimes they get picked up, and we have no idea where, where this thing is going. We're taking this thing season by season, and especially if you get yourself into science fiction places, sci-fi fans, sci fans are the best and the worst. They are going to learn your rules and know your world better than you do. And then now you're gonna be in the writer's room having to make up new rules to get yourself out of holes because you didn't realize these holes were gonna happen and now your fans are at home going, nope, there's no way that would happen because this, 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 and this. They know all of the rules. So they then can catch you in it. So now it's unbelievable, you know, simply because you're not working within the rules that you set up. So that happens in TV 
all the time. I actually just, I won't say the name of this show, but I just watched a show the other day. It was their series finale. And they needed one of the protagonists, because it's an ensemble cast, they needed one of the protagonists to end up in a particular place. And the way that they got her there, unbelievable. <laughs> Upsettingly so. It's like she wouldn't do that. She just wouldn't do it. So I know that because as a writer, you needed her to get there, you just said, well, we needed her get, need her to get there. This would be a cool way to make it happen or a shocking way to make it happen, so let's do it this way. But it's like, but that particular character would not do that. So it was unbelievable. And the audience voiced their opinion. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all over Twitter, Facebook, everywhere, when people are like, she wouldn't do that, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then... Is it also based on on sort of like maybe the character isn't flushed out enough? Maybe. Some of the ones you read, you said? Oh, yeah, definitely in uh, when I'm reading someone's like new work or original work, you know, sometimes it's just like, well, you don't really know who this character is yet. So you're having them make uh, make choices willy-nilly, you know, and in one choice that they make, okay, that may make some sense, but then this one doesn't, and then, but that doesn't necessarily change anything. We have to think about um, the actions you're taking towards your goal are like cause and effect they're like trial and error. So you're learning along the way. It's like, you know, with anything you're doing in life, if I'm a baby and I'm learning how to walk, if I fall, I learn something from the fall. So the next time I'm not gonna do that same thing. It doesn't mean I won't fall again, but I'm not gonna do that same thing again, right? So it's the same thing true, the same thing is true with your characters. They should be learning something along the way. So if they're not learning something along the way, then it's like, well, it's probably because you don't really know your character very well. But I think it's more so of the thing of, you know, we want to get a TV show made and we don't realize that in five seasons we can kind of run out of ideas <laughs> or you can just kind of run out of smoke or you might not even be interested in these characters anymore, but you're still here and it's still getting made. They're still being ordered and you got to put something on TV. The other thing, like I said earlier, is writing staffs change. And with writing staffs changing, skills may be changing. You may get a lot of new, you know, new writers that come in in season three. And now they're learning on the job. <laughs> you know what I mean? You might get a new showrunner that comes in at the beginning, someone who's never run a show before, right? If they've never run a show before, you might be learning on the job. You might get a new showrunner in the middle of the series and now they're learning on the job. There's so many, the executives might change. So the notes are now changing and people don't realize how much that can make an effect. If you have a very good executive who understands your show and understands your characters and the notes they give help in the success of the show. If you suddenly get some executives who don't know your show very well, don't know your characters very well, but they're giving notes because that's what they're supposed to do. Now the notes aren't that great and now they're pushing your show into one direction or the other. Like you never know, it could be happening anywhere. But here I am as at home watching it going, man, this series used to be so good. <laughs> like what happened? It could be a number of things that have, that happened. How does a writer know what they're good at? Oh, good question. I think a lot of that's going to come from your own confidence. A lot of that is going to come from just like within, just knowing like this is a natural skill for me. This is a natural area for me. But I do think it takes some time to get there, which is why when writers work with me, I'll ask them those kind of questions. Like, are you writing what you like to write? Or are you writing what you like to watch? Are you writing characters that you know very well? Or are you writing characters that you observe? Which is fine, but make sure that if there are people that you just observe, that you then try to get in there so you really know why they do the things that they do. <laughs> you know, And I think a lot of the times we write what we think is on trend. We write what we think people are going to buy. 
And by doing that, you're not necessarily finding your niche. Though you might be finding, I don't like this. But the question is, are you then gonna be honest with yourself and say, I don't like writing this. So then you'll stop writing that and start writing what you do like. So I think it takes some work, but I also think it just takes some honesty, like within, like just, just like it would for anyone who's working any job. There are people who are on their job right now and they know, I don't like this. Or they know I have a different skill set and I do like my job and I have this skill set that can get me this promotion, but nobody else can see it. Like people, you know, just kind of know, just like what we said about that athlete thing, you just kind of know that it's going to be football or basketball or golf or whatever, even though when you're a young kid, your parents might, you know, put you in all five of them and eventually you just narrow it down and say, well, this is the one I like. So the same thing is true for writers. I mean, I think you have to go with your first gut. Right, because most people start writing because they had an idea. There usually aren't people who just start writing because they're in a writing class. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most people are, I have this idea, so they start writing. So great, write it, get it out. See if your next idea is in that same wheelhouse. And then what about your next one? And if they're all kind of in that same place, then you start to realize either this is what I like or this is what I'm good at. But we also know just as, again, as people, a lot of us do, a lot of us are great at things that we don't like to do. You know, you hear people say all the time, like, this is what I'm great at, but I don't want to do that. Like, for example, I'm a great teacher. I do not want to be a teacher. <laughs> so the kind of teaching that I do is by teaching adults in online screenwriting courses or doing workshops. So I'm still a teacher. As a script consultant, I am a teacher, but I am not the... Um, what, what people consider a teacher. I don't get up every morning and have to be in a classroom full of little people all day. I don't want to do it. I've been fighting it my whole life. Just the other day, my mother said to me, well, you know, since you work from home, you should probably go ahead and get your teaching certification. I don't want to be a teacher, <laughs> you know, but it's just a natural, you know, uh, a natural skill that I have to be a teacher. So the same thing is true for a writer. You just have to be honest with yourself about this is my skill set. But is this what I like doing? And figure out if you can find like what that middle ground is, something that you're skilled at and you actually like. And some people are group people and others are excellent one-on-one. -on -one. I think, mm -hmm. yeah, so. And that's gonna mm -hmm. matter because if you're not a group person, then you don't wanna write TV. And so I have people say all the time, like I wanna be a TV writer. And it's like, but you don't take good notes. You don't like to be around people, <laughs> you know? And you think that this process is all about you. You can't possibly wanna write TV. TV most TV shows, it's changed a little bit because now we have streamers, now we have blah, 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 so things happen all kinds of different ways. But most TV shows have a writer's room that you're gonna be stuck in for weeks, for you know, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, with you and them, discussing, 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 discussing. If you don't wanna be around people, you might not wanna write TV. The, the same is true for if you don't wanna to move to Los Angeles, you probably don't wanna write TV. Right, because most TV writers' rooms are in Los Angeles. Sure, there are a couple, literally a couple in Atlanta, maybe a couple in New York, but 90-something percent of the writers' rooms are here in Los Angeles. You don't have to live in Los Angeles to be a feature writer. Um, it's probably best that you do, at least at the beginning of your career, so you can meet the people you need to meet, because here in LA, in LA because uh, film is the industry, you might run into someone in the grocery store. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these people are everywhere. And if you're gonna have a meeting, they're gonna call you in. A lot of the times they're not gonna do their first time meetings 
over the phone. It's just not going to happen that way. They want you to come in. They want to see you. And depending upon what you do for a living, you can't afford to fly and get a hotel every single time you take a meeting, right? So still being in LA is probably a good thing to do if you're a writer because you want to be able to just be in the mix, meet the people, get to know the people, and be able to see them face to face. But other than that, after you've established yourself as a feature writer, you can live wherever you want because you can submit via email. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't have to be here. But for TV writers, most of the rooms are here. So that's something that people should take into consideration when they're deciding they want to be a writer. You got to ask yourself those questions too. Am I a team player or do I want to do this thing solo? Do I want to live in Los Angeles or do I want to live in Connecticut? Like, where do you want to be? How many screenwriters have you come across who only have one screenplay completed? Most of them. I would say the majority of them only have one screenplay completed and that's okay. Um, especially if they're in the beginning, then they're still trying to figure out what it is they want to do or if this is really what they want to do or if again, I just have an idea and I want to get my baby made. Then I don't expect them to have more screenplays because it's not about them becoming professional writers. It's about them getting their baby made. For those who I know want to be professional writers, then we start to have those conversations about, okay, when it's time for you to meet an agent or a manager or, or whoever, whomever, they're going to say, what else do you have? So you got to have something else. And again, thinking about branding yourself, you want to have something else within your voice. See, we get it a little bit twisted because we start to think, well, I want to show them how diverse I am, right? So I'm going to have one of these and one of these and one of these and one of these. It actually does the opposite for writers if they don't already know you. If you're brand new, it does the opposite. They want to be able to read three of your scripts and understand your voice. They want to be able to read three of your scripts and understand these are the characters you write well. This is the world you know well, right? So if you um, write big city things, then what's in your writing samples should be big city things. If you write small town things, then all of your writing samples should be small town things. And it doesn't mean that you can't write big city things, but you're just again trying to say, but this is my voice. This is what I write. Understand my brand. So it's not a negative thing if you only have one screenplay. It's just the question is, what do you want to do? If you want to be a professional writer, then you got to go write more because writers have to write. And of the people that you work with as a script consultant or even just email you mm -hmm. to test the waters, how many of them have never let anyone else see that one screenplay? Hmm. I would say, I think it's a little hard now that it's, we're, it's 2019 and there are like script coverage services all over the internet. So I don't meet very many people who haven't let somebody else read it, even if they're not, even if they aren't professionals. But I think I'm usually the first like professional person that they've had read it. You know, maybe mom read it or sister read it or cousin read it, you know. But I, I think I'm usually like one of the most, one of the first professional people. And I think that's also because even though all of those resources are out there, a lot of people never utilize the resources. Like they haven't really Googled. People don't even know, and I'm not saying that they should, but they don't even know that a script consultant exists. So they're not thinking, let me go Google script consultant, you know. Some of them are thinking the only way I'm going to learn how to write a screenplay is if I go to film school. They're not thinking there are online classes, there are one-day workshops, there are three-day workshops. People aren't really thinking that, so they're not even looking for it. You know, they may the most they may do is like go Google some books and go to the library and get the books or go buy the books or Amazon the books or whatever. But for the most part, by the time they get to me, I'm like the first uh, professional uh, uh, opinion they're getting, and they usually have found me on social media by accident, <laughs> not even looking for me. You know. Um, 
I think that's how I found you. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, like, you know, oh, I like that's that. the yeah. great thing about, you know, uh, 2020 is that people can just randomly find you. So I think they're usually like, oh my God, you're the, you're what I've been needing this whole time. I just didn't know that you existed, you know? And that's the hard part about being an entrepreneur is figuring out, you know, how are you going to market yourself so people know that you exist? Because it's like, once people know me, they're like, I need you. And they usually, usually utilize me and almost all of them come back. Like all of my, my clients are usually returned clients. And that's if they're writing quickly enough. Because as we know, somebody may write something this year and they might not write another thing for you know, two more years. That happens with some people. But for those of, my, those of my clients who are actually trying to become professional writers and they're writing often, they always come back with whatever their next project is. And it becomes like a, a team effort. You know, like, like I'm a part of the team. If I'm gonna write something, Shannon's gonna read it. She's gonna give me some notes and she's gonna be real with me. I always tell people, if you don't want <laughs> you know, my honest opinion, again, not my subjective opinion, because that's not what it's about. This is not about me saying this is good or bad. But if you don't want me to let you know that some of the choices you're making aren't being executed the way that you think they're being executed, then I'm not the person for you, you know? But if you want me to just give it to you straight, I'll give it to you straight. And at the end of the day, you can always not listen. <laughs> that's the best part about it. You don't have to take the note, because it's your work, and you can decide to do with it what you please. And do you think most people are fine with that in terms of they, they actually want you yeah. to give them? Mm -hmm. I think I've only had, I've had maybe two or three people give pushback. And I'm always, I'm fine with it because I'm not here to prove to you that my feedback is correct. This is still art. You can decide to do whatever you, you don't. And so a lot of my feedback is usually in questions because I don't want to tell you what to think. I want to tell you what I think you're, you're saying and see if we're on the same page. So I will usually ask a whole lot of questions. I then sometimes get people who respond back answering the questions. <laughs> it's like, that's not what I need you to do. I'm asking them because it's not clear on your page. So you need to go put that on the page, just like you can't stand outside at all of the theaters and answer everybody's questions. I'm not asking you to answer my questions here. I'm saying, if I'm asking, that means it's not there. If I'm asking, whatever it is you're trying to make happen, isn't happening. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's what you're doing on purpose. Fine. I don't need the answer. You don't have to prove anything to me. I then will have other people push back um, simply because they got a different set of feedback from somebody else. And that's fine. I'll always say to them, great. If you get another set of feedback and that person says what I said, or that person said what the other, set, other person said, then now you know which direction to go into. Because if you hear it more than once, then it's probably a problem, right? Um, so yeah, um, I've had a couple of people push back simply because they said, well, the problem that you see is not a problem. And I say, you know, that's fine. My only feedback to that is if it wasn't a problem, we wouldn't be having this conversation, <laughs> right? Like you sent it to me because it's not working for you. I've given you the reasons why it's not working. And you say, well, that's not why it's not working. Well, that's fine. You don't have to take the notes. I wish you best, you know, with your with your project. And hopefully it'll work out for you. I don't ever want someone's project to not work just because I gave the note and they didn't want to take it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's again what makes it art. So you don't have to take the note. But I think again going back to well this is my baby or it's personal. I've been writing like I had one woman respond, I've been writing for this many years and I've blah 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 blah. That's great. These are the problems that I see. Hopefully it works out for you. And there's not very much, you know, much else I can I can say to it, but it's not a, it doesn't become like a a war between whose uh, feedback is correct or isn't. Like I, I'm not gonna take it personally if you don't take one note 
You know, I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability as professional as I can, professionally as I can, and you can take it or you can leave it and that's okay. How should a writer start a screenplay? Ooh, so there are several different ways you can start a screenplay. Um, and a lot of that goes back to whatever your idea is, is probably the thing that's gonna come to you first. But you should definitely then start trying to figure out what all the rest of those elements are. So figuring out what the world is, knowing what the tone is. A lot of people may not think about tone, but tone matters. Uh, tone is that, um, that, that, um, that, that feeling that makes this different from slapstick comedy, regular comedy, romantic comedy, into kind of a comedic drama that is now more regular drama, family drama that ends up now this gritty thriller thing. So it, it's kind of like the, the nuance <laughs> between the genres, right? Like what that tone is. Um, and then knowing who your characters are, knowing who's gonna go on this journey, figuring out why we should care about them, um, uh, figuring out how we're gonna relate to them and relating to them doesn't have to mean liking them, we just have to relate. Um, then knowing what goal they're after because anything that's on TV, anything that's on, uh, anything that's a feature is about a character reaching a goal. That's why we're here. We don't wanna just see people go through their day-to-day -day lives, right? We wanna see like they're after something or something's after them, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, um, but they have a goal. Um, figuring out what the stakes are. The stakes are gonna be the why. Why am I here? Why do I care? What's, what's going on? What are they gonna win? What are they gonna lose? Um, because if not, then why do I care if they reach the goal? If they don't, if there's nothing at stake for them, then I am gonna be that much less invested. Um, and people usually know what the end is. People usually kind of know what the setup is and they kind of know what the resolution is, right? It's the second act where everyone kind of falls apart. And it's because we really don't start asking, our, asking ourselves, how, how are they gonna get from A to B? So I personally feel like everyone should write an outline. There are gonna be writers who are reading this like, ha, I've never written an outline and I've done great. That's great. You might have that special skill, <laughs> you know? You also might be a person who doesn't mind rewriting 15 times, because no matter what, you're gonna rewrite, right? I think by writing the outline, you cut down the number of rewrites because your first draft isn't as terrible because you've actually plotted out what it is you're going to do. So you didn't just start at the blank page and start writing and just like, you know, oh, well maybe they'll go this way and maybe they go that way. Because as soon as you change one thing, what does it do? Changes everything else, there's a domino effect. If you're doing that in outline form, for some people that's putting it on cards, some people that's putting it on a whiteboard, you know, now you just erase that one little part and write it, write it back or you move your, your cards around because you realize this scene could probably be best there and it heightens the stakes if we make this thing happen here. I do mine in a Word document and I put um, the actual uh, scene heading on top and then whatever's happening in that scene so I can copy and paste that whole little thing all over the place if I want to. So it's easier to kind of see your story on paper and move it around as much as you'd like before it gets into script format. Then it becomes a little harder to do that. So if you have an outline and you really understand how does this person get from A to C? What happens during B? What do they physically do? So I'm always asking how? And so people will then answer that with, with a general answer. And I'll go, no, no, no. I wanna know what the character's physically doing. Like, what am I watching them do? And you can say, well, they're saving the world. <laughs> How? Are they saving the world by going to Starbucks? Are they saving the world by having to go confront a bad guy? Yes, they have to confront the bad guy. How? How did they find him? Where was he? Was he just down the street? Was he, you know, in another country? He's in another country. 
how do they get there? <laughs> you know, do they take a bus? Do they take a train? Do they have to fly? Do they swim? You know, like all of these little details about how we actually get from A to C are the things that people don't think about until they're on the page and then they're, then they're stuck and they stop. And they're like, I can't get past this part. And it's like, yeah, because you didn't think about that part until you got here. But if you took some time to figure it out before you get to the writing part, now the writing is fun because you got your notes and you're like, oh, okay, this is what's supposed to be happening right now. Oh, okay, I get it. And now it can happen a, a little more clean than it would have if you just went straight to the page. And so now, maybe instead of doing five rewrites, you only have to do two. So I teach a whole class called No Writer's Block, and that's what we do. We learn screenplay structure, and by the end of it, you have an outline so that you can go write whatever it is you wanna write. Also, because you're learning screenplay structure, now you can outline anything. Now you know the structure of anything. So it's not just, oh, well, I figured the outline out for this idea, now what? It's like, no, any idea can fall straight into that same place so that you feel more confident because that's the other, that's the, where writer's block comes from is that you just, you're not confident in what you're doing. But if you have a plan already, right? It's like we were talking about earlier, if I've already printed out my directions or if I have my Google Maps on my phone, then I know where I'm going. I say, I can't, I can't, this is not a good example. I was gonna say, I can say I wanna drive to Louisiana, but if I don't look it up, I can't get there. I happen to know where Louisiana is from here. <laughs> so I could probably get there. But there are other people who are like, who would have no idea that they can get on I-10 and get all the way <laughs> to Louisiana. Some people might not know that. but. Um, so they would need to have those directions. If you don't have those directions, now you're veering you know, left and now you've taken a wrong turn and now you've done X, Y, and Z and you've wasted however many hours trying to get there when you could have had a straight shot if you just had the directions. So to me, that's what an outline is. It's your Google Maps so that you know where you're going. So I think beginning writers should definitely start in that place. Well, start by learning structure, right? Start by understanding what elements it takes to have a story and then outline. What if they say, well, I'm good at outlining the, my first few, but now I just know I, I don't need to anymore. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's, everybody has to, every writer has to find their own process. So outlines don't work for everybody. Beat sheets don't work for everybody. Treatments don't work for everybody. You have to figure out what works well for you. Because I'm always thinking about what's efficient and effective for me most of the time. Because if I'm writing a short, I only need to know the big beats. Right? I don't have to outline the whole thing. You know? If I'm writing a feature, I need to outline the whole thing. Because I don't, I don't want to get stuck in the screenplay part. That's frustrating for me in my process. But if that's the part of the process that you enjoy, you can do it that way. I don't, I don't tell people that it's like a must. But I do tell people, especially people who are learning or people who aren't learning, but they've been writing for a while and they're trying to make it more efficient. You know, so it's like, no, I've never outlined before, but I always end up getting there. It's like, yeah, but do you get there in a year? Because you might be able to get there in three months. <laughs> you know, maybe depending upon what else you have going on in your life, you know. So definitely people don't have to do it that way. I think you have to figure out what your process is and, and make sure that that process is efficient for you. Again, if you're trying to be a professional writer, because you're trying, that means you're trying to write more than one thing a year. Maybe sell more than one thing a year. You can't do that if everything that you write takes, you know, 15 drafts in two years to write. So you want to look for something uh, that's more efficient. And for me, writing the outline is just more efficient. What are the biggest mistakes a screenwriter makes on page one? Ooh, mistakes on page one. 
Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes is jumping into something that's not going to teach us anything. So it doesn't matter to the story, but you think it's cool, <laughs> right? So understanding that those first few pages are about the setup, right? So this is, this is me gathering information about the character, about the world, about, you know, I'm going to start making assumptions about what's going to happen. I'm not looking for the inciting incident on page one, but I am looking for things that are intentional and things that are going to help me understand at least who this character is. So that's why you'll see a lot of action films open with an action scene because you're teaching me the skills that this protagonist has. You're teaching me that they know how to fight. They're usually the good, the good guy. They're usually the winners or whatever other information that you need me to know. And so now when the inciting incident does happen and they say, you're going to have to go off and save the world, I believe they can do it because you've already shown me that they can. So I think it's easy on page one to just like open with something that uh, like, you know, we, we call it the opening image, right? And then on, the, on that opening image, we're thinking, okay, let's do something big. Let's do something cool. It's like, but if that doesn't have anything to do with your story, or if it doesn't have anything to do with helping to build who your character is, that also should have something to do with the story. Because you can tell me all kinds of things about your character, but if that doesn't matter to the story, then I don't need to know. You might need to know as a writer because it's going to inform you as you write, but do I need to know as an audience? So I think sometimes we get stuck in a place where we're talking about something that's cool or talking about something that's exciting, but it really has nothing to do with anything. And now you've lost that executive who's only given you 10 pages in the first place because you've just spent the first three pages with two people at a cafe talking about something that's very interesting, but then we never see that person they were just talking to ever again. And whatever it is they were talking about has nothing to do with what our protagonist is about to go and, you know, journey, go on on this journey. Interesting. Why do you think people do that? Why, like, oh, wouldn't this be really cool? We'll open it with this, but it, like you said, it doesn't even, it doesn't tie yeah. back to anything. I think it just goes back to them not understanding screenplay structure. I think we just watch movies. And if you're only watching for entertainment, which is what most people do, that's why people don't like to go to the movies with me or watch TV with me, because I'm not watching for entertainment, <laughs> right? But you know, most people who are watching for entertainment are just taking in the cool stuff, you know? And they're going, oh my God, wasn't it so cool when this opened like that? It's like, yes, but what does that have to do with your screenplay? You know, like, oh, will you remember in this movie when this happened? So at this point in 2020, we all grew up watching movies, right? So that means, there are movie things that we get attached to, right? So we're not necessarily thinking about story, we think about movie moments, you know? Like that's just a part of like, can you imagine the people who are growing up now? Like movie moments are gonna be their thing. So a lot of the times people are writing screenplays because they're writing what, they, what they've seen already because they think that those are the movie moments that make the film. Instead of realizing that movie moment mattered because of who those characters were and what they were trying to get done. It means absolutely nothing in your screenplay. It means budget in your screenplay, <laughs> you know. We recently had a screenwriting teacher tell us that 99% of screenplays are rejected by the industry after the first scene. So is that true in your experience? Yeah, it's, it's, it, again, it's those first 10 or 15 pages. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the first scene. It depends on who you're sending it to. Um, because most places will say at least give it the 10 pages so that we can say that we did our due diligence, right? Now, you could have a scene that lasts 10 pages, you know, you could have only two or three scenes within those 10 pages. So that's, yeah, totally, it happens. If you, if you can't capture me, if I don't care about your character 
within these first 10 or 15 pages. If I don't, again, we haven't reached that inciting incident, so I don't even know what this thing is about <laughs> anymore. So now I'm just grasping for straws. I'm reading it. You know, There has to be something that connects me so that I can want to read the rest because people these days will send you a screenplay that's 200 pages long. Who has time for that? If you can't connect me in those first 10 pages, I am not about to spend my next two hours reading 200 pages. It's like for what when there's a whole stack of screenplays here that might capture me within the first five or 10 pages? You know, why do I need to, why do I need to spend my time reading the 200? It's the same thing when you're thinking about television. So a lot of the times people will, you know, have a pilot and now they're thinking of, uh, you know, the, the next couple of episodes and they're like, oh my God, I'm really going to get you at, at episode five. I've got to wait five episodes before I'm invested. <laughs> no one's going to do that. If you can't catch me at the pilot, that don't mean as an audience. I mean like as the executives, as the people you're pitching to. The pilot is what sells the series. If you're telling me that you, you're going to go into this pitch meeting, you're going to say to them, wait till we get to episode five, then that sounds like episode five to the pilot. <laughs> you know, like you got to get me in here. And, and because it's 2020, I could be doing this. <laughs> While I'm watching, you know, I could be doing all kinds of things. I can have on, what are these things? People put the, uh, like there's all kinds of technology and like I could be looking in a whole nother dimension right now <laughs> instead of, you know, watching your television show or your feature. So, you know, if it's going to take five episodes before I get there and I'm not saying it doesn't happen because I will watch things and go, it didn't catch me until episode three, right? But when you're in the room and you're trying to sell it, that pilot is what's going to sell it. Not you saying to them, because like if they're, if you've just pitched your pilot and the people are just kind of like, you're like, wait, 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 I didn't get to tell them about episode five. That's why they didn't buy it. No, 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 no. They didn't buy it because the pilot wasn't interesting or they weren't invested in what was going on. So it's the same thing is true in once they have the script in their hands, because you can also come in and pitch one thing and then you get the script, you're bored to tears. Or you're like, this is not what you pitched. <laughs> you know, you said it was one thing and now I'm looking at the page and it's really this other things. Sometimes that might be a good thing. Sometimes it may be a bad thing. But simply just because executives are doing a million things. Some of them are not just development executives, but they're also current, program exe current programming executives, which means they're running shows that are on set right now, that are in production right now, that are in writer's rooms right now, and they're taking pitch meetings and reading scripts, etc. So they're reading scripts from the shows that are already being done. They're reading scripts from people who are coming to pitch. They don't have time to read all 200 pages of your screenplay. They're, and if they do, they're going to scan it. So they're still not going to even catch on, catch on to like all of the nuances and all of the everything unless they are that invested because you're, you're you know, grabbing them that way. So that's why those first few pages have to catch them. And it doesn't mean I put an explosion so it caught them. You know, because it's like explosion for what? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it still has to make sense to your story. When you were teaching, you said at Florida State, mm -hmm. um, and you had the students watch movies and then write this. Was it almost like they were writing coverage on it, sort of? Um, no. So we would be uh, specifically talking about, like, analyzing how uh, costuming and makeup may inform what oh, you see, how lighting may inform what. So we would talk about cinematography, we would talk about directing, we would talk about all of the elements of, of the film industry that may be uh, informing what you're seeing on screen. But not the actual screenplay. Not the screenplay. Oh, Literally just what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So visual. Oh, yes, okay. because people will always say, oh, the writer did a great job. And it's like, well, you don't really know if that moment was something, A, that the writer put in there, 
or if you were feeling that really because of what the light was doing, what the music was doing, <laughs> you know, what the director may have asked for, what the actors are giving you may have nothing to do with the writing. It's like literally a separate thing. So yep, we didn't study the screenplays at all in this particular class. It was just watching the films and analyzing all of the different elements from production that may be informing the film. What film that you used as one of the examples had the most different responses to it? Hmm, this was more than a decade ago. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I do not remember okay, all right. at all. I know we used to watch Annie Hall. Okay. <laughs> and we watched Do the Right Thing. Okay. Um, but again, going back to this whole writing thing, if I, if I sat down with the students and had them explain to me what they were seeing, they could do it. Putting it in the written form was an entirely different thing. So just, you know, again, going back to everybody might have an idea, but it doesn't make them a writer. Like being able to take what you have here and put it on the page is a skill. And I think we understand that when we're school aged because we're doing it all the time. But then we become adults and we say, I'm a writer. And it's like, yeah, that th it's hard. It's hard to get stuff from here to there. So a lot of their grade was really based on how well they could uh, give me the information in the written form, which is why I was, would focus on thesis statements or even bibliographies. I had a student come to me and say she had never heard of a bibliography. And we, this is an undergraduate course. Oh, okay. I told her that you cannot be telling the truth. I would have rather she just said, I forgot to put it in. And then I would have let her go home, put it in and come back and get a grade. But because she said to me, I, no one's ever told me I had to cite something before. I just could not believe it. I was like, that's just not, <laughs> that cannot be true. So I gave her a zero on the, um, cause I told them ahead of time, if you don't cite your sources, you're going to get a zero. If I hadn't told them that, then of course I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but also I explained to them, getting a zero gives you an opportunity to redo it. If I give you the actual grade, you might get a 50 or a 49 or something because you half did the assignment. That you're not going to be able to change. The zero, you can change. That's you, fair. You know, yeah. redo it and now you get, a, you know, a new grade on it. So they would get the zero and be hurt, and hurt but they didn't realize the zero is actually helping you. Because mm -hmm. if I actually just grade it for what it is, you, that's not the grade that you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I wish more places gave zeros that we could redo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In what other ways do screenplays make a bad impression? Bad first impression. Yeah, bad first impression. Um, a lot of people aren't that great at the English language. That's totally okay. Hire a proofreader. That's like, that should be writing 101 for anybody, anywhere. A, there's usually a spell check. B, there's usually some kind of grammar check. Outside of that, there are people like myself <laughs> who get paid to proofread. As an, and, and again, just, just like regular people aren't that great with the English language, there are some executives who aren't that great with the English language. So they may read it and it may mean nothing to them that there's a grammatical error every other word, that there's something misspelled every other word, that there are commas all over the place and semicolons being misused. It might not mean anything to them. It'll be just your luck, it ends up on my desk. Because that to me makes you a lazy writer. It's not because I expect you to be perfect at the English language, but I do expect you to care enough that if your screenplay finally got to my desk, that you cared enough about your story to not let proofreading be the thing that makes me not read it. So I will just make that assumption that you don't care, so why should I? So that's like a very, very big thing. The same thing is with formatting. Screenplay formatting is different. Television formatting is different. 
If you don't understand formatting, find someone who does and have them format your script. If you send your script to me and it looks like a novel, I'm not gonna read it. And I'm also going to assume you didn't care enough about the craft to figure out what this is supposed to look like. So if you don't care, I can't care, <laughs> right? It just, it gives me a reason. Those will be reasons for me to not even give it 15 pages as an exec. I don't have to read 15 pages to know that you don't know what you're doing. And because this is an industry that's so hard to get into and people usually only hire who they know in the first place, if you're telling them right out the gate, I have no idea what I'm doing, why should they have to continue to read? You know, so that th those kind of lazy writer things are definitely bad first impressions. How important is show, don't tell? <gasps> did a whole workshop on show, don't tell. <laughs> on your site? I did, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, it's on my site for purchase, actually. Great. Uh, it's called WTF Does Show, Don't Tell Me, right? Because a lot of people hear it all the time, but they really don't understand what the note is. Um, so it's very important, mostly because this is a visual art form. So a lot of us learned how to write by writing prose, right? Most of us do not learn screenplay writing or uh, script writing in any kind of format when we're in elementary school or middle school and not even high school for some people. Some people go to college and it's still more about theory. It's not necessarily about writing or like the class that they took from me was about analyzing the films. It wasn't about writing the films. So there's a lot of people who just don't get to learn that part. So they will end up using that prose kind of language within their screenplay. So they will be telling me she feels angry right now. How do I know she feels angry right now? What am I seeing on the screen? What does her anger look like? If that same person walks into a room, picks up something and throws it, now I know she's angry. You don't have to tell me she's angry. You just showed me that she was angry. So. Show Don't Tell is very, very important when it comes to screenplays and is another one of those things that kind of shows you to be an amateur at this to show that you're not very professional at it or that you might be just trying your, trying your hand at it for the first time because you end up with a whole lot of pros. You end up with a, a whole lot of telling. Well, just yesterday she had a fight with her sister, so today she's over it. How do I know what happened yesterday? If you didn't show me the scene when she had a fight with her sister, I don't know what happened yesterday, which means all I'm seeing is a person standing there, <laughs> you know? Like if you can just imagine, what am I seeing as this, screen, as this uh, scene is going on? So the scene says, interior apartment. She had a terrible fight with her sister yesterday. What am I looking at? Just a person standing there? What's the visual thing? What's the active thing? So show, don't tell, extremely important. Just on a side note, mm -hmm. I noticed on your Instagram, you had something that was really funny about TV moms and how there's a, there's a character trait to them. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could just... Yeah, so I can't remember what I was watching. It's a show that I like. A Million Little Things. <laughs> I don't know if anybody watches it. It's an ABC show. I like ABC programming. Um, and one of the women's mothers was coming to visit. And she's like, oh, I gotta deal with my mom. And I just started to realize in a lot of the content we take in, People don't like their mothers. Like the mother is always this passive aggressive, very critical character. And I don't mean it when the mother herself is the protagonist. Like if the show is about her, then she's likable because she has to be. Or if it's a family show, so like, you know, it's an ensemble show, and so there's a mom and a dad and some children, the parents are likable because the show is about them all. But if those parents' parents visit, 
somebody always doesn't like a mom, <laughs> you know, or even if it's a mother-in-law, you know what I mean? There's always some tension between the women, <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, what is that about? Like, why do we write them that way? And I'm not saying that there aren't critical women, just as much as there are critical men in the world, but I'm like, I don't know anyone personally who has that kind of relationship with their mother. That if their mother were to show up, the first thing they would think is, you know, like I just, like, sure, if your mom starts being mom, you know, then yeah, you're like, okay, mom, I'm an adult. You know, you get, you know, you get into that sure. kind of place uh -huh. of like, I know how to do it. It's okay. I don't need you to tell me kind of thing. Right. But the whole just like, you know, I can't stand my mom. I don't want her to come around. She's always so critical. Like she doesn't even realize she's this critical and why. And I'm just like, we always end up writing our mother characters that way. And one of the reasons I think we do that is because those are movie moms. And so when we write movies, we think, oh, she's supposed to be this way. This is how you know we write moms. And it's just like, but is your mom that way? Is your mom that way? Is your friend's mom that way? Like, are there any moms? The mom is always like the antagonist, <laughs> you know? Well, I'm seeing a lot of commercials that are like reinforcing, you can still be a cool mom. And so, I'm not a parent, mm -hmm. but like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, like, okay, thing. so that's really important for moms to be considered cool be, moms. Yes, to be considered cool. And I think it's because they don't want to be considered critical or, you know, mm -hmm. passive aggressive or whatever these things are. So it's like you, being cool is now a thing. And I'm like, yeah. And I don't think we realize how much our industry plays a part in what we're pushing as what a mom is. You know what I mean? I think in the Gilmore Girls, was it was it Perry Gilpin's character? She mm -hmm. was a cool mom. Wasn't yeah, she? Mm -hmm. I, I think so. I don't I don't show. remember. Right, it was so long ago. Yeah. But I think I think their whole thing was she had her daughter at a young age, so she was a cool mom. But that's what made her not cool is that the daughter was more of the mom than ah, the mom was. Okay. So it was like, sure, she's not this overly critical, blah blah blah. She's the irresponsible one, though. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, between them, you know. Gotcha. Okay. But in The Nanny, that could probably be mm -hmm. uh, Fran Drescher's mom. Mm -hmm. Great character. Mm -hmm. But I think there was more of that dynamic. Yeah. There. yeah. Like, think about Everybody Loves Raymond mm -hmm. and the parents right. <laughs> across the street. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. I mean, I think she's funny and everybody likes her and blah, 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 blah. But all of the adult children are like, oh, mom, you know. <laughs> Sure, sure. And even if you go to some of the 80s comedies, like the, the John Hughes and stuff, mm -hmm. you could see, yeah, there would be that, the, the parents were, uh, right, you yeah. know, like um, Pretty in Pink or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, just, mm -hmm. the parents were people that were not accessible. Not you accessible. talk to them. Mm -mm. And, and I think yeah. that's another reason why a lot of teen shows don't even have parents, like, present. And I'm always like, where are their parents? <laughs> like, I'm always thinking that when I'm watching, like, teen shows, like, where are the parents? Why? Why don't we? Why don't we know what our kids are out, you know, doing? You know, because I think again, it goes from that like, well, they're unaccessible kind of people, so we just kind of keep them in the backdrop. And every now and again, like when I watch Thirteen Reasons Why, I'm always wondering, like, where are the parents? Like, where are they? And and sure, they show up every now and again, but it's still always um, after the fact. You know what I mean? And I'm just always thinking, like, when when all of these decisions are being made, and these kids are in your house, and all this, like, where is everyone? So yeah. It's kind of a thing. And then what about the role of the dad? Are they mm. the are they sort of the 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 placator? Are they the like the the, mm -hmm. the neutral one? Mm -hmm. They're either very neutral or very cool or you know, well mom's not going to let me do it, but I know dad will. Like you know, they <laughs> like dad's the the go-to guy and mom is always the um like the disciplinarian, 
You know what I mean? Uh, There's because then you have your daddy's little girls or then you have the um, dad and son are like really cool because they, um, you know, relate and, and, you know, go to events together and blah, blah, blah. And the mom's always just like so prickly. No one wants to hang out with her. Right. <laughs> She's at home. Or even like when I'm watching The Americans, uh, I haven't finished it. I don't even know what season I'm on. Um, but they're getting a divorce and the children automatically blame the mom. Oh. Automatically. And it was just like, what? and not to say that either one of them were was at fault because The Americans is a whole thing that they're spies in the first place. <laughs> you know, and so they were made to get married. So there was no love, right? So they have been together for so long now their kids are teenagers and they're really realizing like well why are we you know really doing this why are we staying together like we've never really loved each other so they're deciding to part and the teenage daughter automatically was like it's your fault mom Hmm. not dad's fault and she's like what like where does this come from yeah what are some of your favorite characters of all time and what makes them so great hmm good question favorite characters you know what I don't know why I can watch Twilight every time it comes on. Isn't that crazy? I am into Twilight. I actually read the books and while reading the books, I understood a little bit more why these characters uh, fall so deeply in love with each other. But it also, by the time I got to like book, I can't remember how many books there were. I know they made five movies, so maybe that meant there were four books. Um, By the time I got to book three, it also became a little too much for me. Like their love affair, their teenage love affair became a lot. <laughs> and I, so I couldn't get into it. When I saw the first movie, it was laughable. I literally, cause I didn't know anything about the series. I hadn't read the books yet. I saw the first movie and I wanted my money back because the production value was so, I was, I was laughing. I was like, why are we here? Why are we watching this? This is terrible. And now I can watch all of it because it is something about how much they care about each other <laughs> that just, reels you in. I just, I don't even know how to, how to explain it. Um, for Harry Potter, um, I'm just into the fantastical world. I think I watch it and I just think of JK Rowling and go like, how did you like, what is going on in your brain? (laughs) So I'm into her world, I guess more so than I am the characters. Um, simply because when you, when you, uh, make a new world, you have to make the new rules. You have to come up with the names you have to do, you know, you have to kind of design what this place is going to look like. And it's just so fantastical. And so anytime, anytime, a a movie is like within a series, I always almost like the first one first because it's the introduction into the world. So I can rewatch like the first Harry Potter all the time because we're, we're in his fish out of water, you know, point of view being introduced into this world. And it's always so fascinating to me. I mean, you know, look, Friday Night Lights. <laughs> and I don't even know why those characters stick with me because, you know, I was a cheerleader, sure, but I wasn't very into football. If I wasn't a cheerleader, I probably would not have been at the football games. So again, it was probably the world that, that got me in. Um, and I guess that, that's the thing for me. I think if I'm interested in the world, then I can probably ride along with what's going on. Um, I don't know why in the moment I can't think of any particular characters that have uh, made a, a difference for me. I mean, maybe some actors, like back in the 90s, I loved a good um, Eddie Murphy film. You know, I always do. I was going to get something great out of him. So I love coming to America. That's another fish out of sto- fish out of water story. But he's coming into our water, so it's not a new world for us. But we're seeing it, you know, from his point of view. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of any. Did you like Dolomite? I did like Dolomite, and I literally only watched it because it was Eddie Murphy coming to do something again. Even though I did not watch 
when he was on Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live because I'm just not into sketch comedy. I don't know why. I'm just not into it. <laughs> so, um, but yes, I did watch Dolomite and it was really good. I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now I'm going to see what this Coming to America 2 is going to be about because it's not something I think is necessary. There's all these remakes, you know, that are happening and I think the majority of them are unnecessary. It doesn't mean that it won't end up being a good film or a good TV show or whatever that's being remade, but that just says to me Hollywood is like basically saying no to all of the new ideas and they're just trying to redo what they think people already want or what has already proven to work. And we know that there's so many writers who are out here trying to get their stuff done. So it's a little, you know, frustrating in that way of like another remake. So we'll see what Coming to America 2 does. I feel that way about songs, but then I realized that there were songs when I was younger that I didn't realize they were remakes. Yes. I thought they were incredible. Yes. So I wonder if it's just the evolution of, you know, each generation wants its own mm -hmm. thing. And, mm -hmm. and I go, but that, that one was so great. This right. one doesn't sound the same. Mm -hmm. same I'm always like, leave it alone. Just let yeah. it be. <laughs> what steps can a writer take to make a three-dimensional character? Ooh, good. Um, I think you got to start thinking about who they are physically, emotionally, socially. You got to figure out what their vulnerabilities are, what their flaws are, what they're good at, what they're not good at, what their insecurities are, because we're all motivated by that. We're motivated by our insecurities. Um, people do things because they're trying to feed whatever hole is on the inside of them. So I do a whole trauma and stress lesson <laughs> during my No Writer's Black course because Every one of us has a trauma, even if your trauma may seem small to me and my trauma may seem small to you, we each have a trauma. And on some level, that trauma created our insecurity and our insecurity is what feeds us. That's our motivation. So I always give the example of um, the characters in The Wizard of Oz. Because the lion is cowardly, he says, if I can get Dorothy to Oz, uh, then I am not a coward because what I have to go through makes me brave. It's not because he really cares about Dorothy and wants to take her to Oz. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's because he's a coward. And so at some point he has to decide, okay, in order to be brave and get rid of the cowardly stuff, then I got to go through something that gets me there. So that's the thing that motivates you know, him to actually do the external thing. So that internal thing is really the motivator for the external thing. And so I feel like that's true for people. And if we realize that about people, then we realize that about characters. And then that's how they become, um, that's how they get depth and they become more relatable. Well, if we go back to Harry Potter, what, what are some of his wounds that then right. show up? And we so his biggest wound is, is identity, right? He's, he's um, not being raised by his parents. So that's in and of itself going to be a trauma. Whether you knew it, him, he knew. He always knew that these weren't his parents. So that's something that has always been inside him all of the time. Some people don't find that information out until later and then the trauma starts, right? But for him, he always knew these are not my people. On top of that, the people who were raising him were mistreating him and abusing him. So that's a second trauma. And then on top of that, he's a weirdo who can hear snakes talking and sometimes make <laughs> things disappear. And so all he's thinking is, I'm this other that no one loves. So I think that's one of the reasons he has a hero complex, that he has to save other people and always be looking. And that's why his friends are so important to him and why he has to save people because of that whole of identity of who am I, who loves me, who do I love back, and where do I belong? How do we get a viewer to care about a character? I think it goes back to that same stuff. Like if, if I can understand 
why you do what you're doing, then that's going to be far more relatable because we're all, almost all of us are, are working from that same kind of place, right? So for example, if I am always seeing a person being lazy, it's easy for me to just assume, are oh, they're lazy? But if I understand that really they're overwhelmed and they want to be, a, they don't know where to start and they want to be able to ask questions, but don't know what question to ask. So they're really frozen in that spot and not being lazy that I can understand. Now I've been in a place where it's like, yo, I need some information, but I don't even know where to begin for whatever reason. I've been equipped to then figure it out. Maybe this person hasn't. So maybe I now have a different perspective of who that person is by understanding that they're just frozen in time because they don't know which way to go because they don't have those kind of skills to do so. Now they're not lazy, they're overwhelmed. I think all of us can relate to overwhelmed people more so than we can relate to a lazy person. It seems like there's so many films with great production value, especially now, but sometimes there's a disconnect with the character. So this goes back to how come we're not always caring about these characters, but the world looks great. There's just something missing about our emotional connection. To yeah. The if that, if that kind of thing happens, and I would definitely say it's probably something that happened in the writing. It's probably something that's not on the, on the page to attach that emotional journey to the physical journey. And so we're missing out on it. Sometimes that happens purposefully because they were more excited about the world and they were more excited about the production value and that's what they wanted to give you. And they figured that part would be the thing that makes you excited about it. And sometimes that happens, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes people, depending upon what they're making, who's making it, why they're making it, who has the money to throw at it. It may just be, I want to tell this big, you know, fantasy story and that's the part that matters. So that's what you get. It just really depends. Again, going back to those executives who have now decided to, to purchase this script and take it into development. If they care about the characters, then it's going to get pulled out. If they don't, it might not. You know, if the brand of the place is, we just want to make big, you know, slasher films that don't, that you don't care about the people, you, people just die. Then they're not going to spend time on trying to make you like them. They're going to give you just one or two things that so that you know that this is the good guy and you know the slasher is the bad guy and then they're just going to make a movie. So it just really depends on what, what they're trying to get across, you know, when they're, when they're doing it. But definitely if you're not able to emotionally connect, then something happened in the writing. The question is, why was it allowed? What can you teach us about raising the stakes? Ooh. Um, I think the biggest thing to think about when raising the stakes is how is it then going to affect the rest of the story? So sometimes the stakes will be raised just because the stakes need to be raised, right? So there just be this extra thing that's just thrown in there so people can go, oh, right? But again, if it's not attached to anything, if it's not going to make our character have to make a real decision that's going to affect them and then affect the rest of the story, sometimes when those stakes are raised, that's when that redirection happens in the film where we thought that this was the goal they were going after, but then the stakes get raised and now they are going in a different direction. So again, everything is cause and effect. So even the thing that causes the stakes to raise has to be obvious for your audience to understand what's happening, right? And then the fact that the stakes are being raised, like for example, let's just make something simple. Let's say it's a singing contest and the, um, the prize is $1,000 and 
I'm a person who is trying to go to college and I really need this $1,000 because it's gonna pay for my dorm, right? So the stakes are, if I don't get the $1,000, I don't have a dorm, right? You can raise the stakes by saying, my mother is also sick at home and I just went to the doctor's office and they said they can't start her, her treatment unless I can give a deposit of $1,000. So sure, you cared when she wasn't gonna have a dorm room, but you know she already has a house and she lives with her mother, so she doesn't have a dorm room. Right. But now to know, but her mother needs treatment and that extra thing that she might find out along the way, now the dorm room doesn't matter at all. The stakes are raised. We want her to win this singing competition. If there were no dorm room and there were no mother, we still might want her to win the singing competition. But if she didn't, okay. I mean, maybe it was a nice movie, you know, like, yay, she sang a song and she got her $1,000. Woo, we all at home know $1,000 is not a lot of money, <laughs> right? But simply by giving, their, giving it a stake in the first place, well, I really want to be able to move in the dorm, but my mother can't afford the dorm. So if I get this $1,000, I can move into the dorm and start my independent life. Now we're like, okay, we can get with that. That's relatable. We understand that. Cool. But then along the way, mom gets sick. She goes to the doctor. That bill is $1,000. Let's say it's $750. Let's say it's $1,000. Let's say it's $1,100. You know, it's probably not going to be right on the nose, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. But whatever it is, we now know that if she wins that money, she can help her mom. So the stakes have been raised because... It <clears throat> helps us to get that much more invested so that she wins, so that she, we root for her. The stakes are about us being able to root for that character. So if that's gonna help us root for the character more, then let's go there. But if it really doesn't change it, like let's say it's $1,000 for the dorm, and then suddenly, now you could win $1,100. It's like, well, who cares if there's another $100 that you can get? <laughs> like, how does that really raise the stakes or change the story? Like, sure, it changes the money. And if we think the money are the stakes, then now we're thinking, I've made a difference. It's now $1,100. I really got to get it now. No, not very much. But just by figuring out something that's going to affect that character and, and, and using that to raise the stakes is going to be that, uh, going to make that much more of a difference. How do you write a great scene? Ooh, I think you should look at your scenes like you look at the whole screenplay and figure out the cause and effect of what does this scene cause to happen and how is it, how is it the effect of what happened before it? Understanding that in every scene, there is a goal, just like there is in the entire screenplay. The only reason we're seeing this scene is because it's getting you closer to or further away from your goal. And so if you look at it like there's a goal that has to be reached so that you can get to the next thing that gets to the next thing that gets to the next thing, then you end up not having scenes that are back to just regular activity instead of intentional action. Or even considering from an actress point of view when they're gonna play out that scene, one of them is winning, right? Somebody's gonna win in this thing in this scene, you know, it's kind of like, it's a fact, it's a fight. It's a ding, 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 in this corner and in this corner. These characters are gonna come and whatever it is that they're saying to each other, someone's gonna win emotionally, someone's gonna lose, someone might physically win, someone might lose. But what that means is now that emotional journey that I was on has been changed. Again, it's the cause and effect. So there might be a physical cause and effect, there might be an emotional cause and effect, or it might be both. But definitely looking at the little, looking at the scenes like they're little movies, right? Like what is it setting up for me? What's the goal of this scene? And then how does it resolve to get me to the next thing? 
So if we were to take the hypothetical female character who was entering a singing contest, now she's found out that her mother needs this deposit to start treatment. Mm -hmm. So that great scene is going to be maybe her getting that news and then she knows that the contest is coming up mm -hmm. and all the things that she's got to do to, I don't know, just because the stakes are risen. It's mm -hmm. not just like, oh yeah, I need it for my dorm room yeah. or I want to buy a nice bag mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, so now her action because of that scene, because of that new information, her intentional action is going to change. So maybe before then she wasn't practicing very much because she's got a natural voice, you know? So she wasn't practicing very much. She wasn't finding any new songs. She's like, oh yeah, I'll just, I'll go up there. I'll sing, you know, whatever. Cause every time I sing this song, it's great. But now this thing has been a humbling moment for her, right? So now we're going to see her going to her lessons. We're going to see her trying to find the best song. Like she's going to be putting a different kind of action into it because now the stakes are risen. Now there's uh, something something more at stake, right? So now she's going to put a different kind of action into it. So that thing is going to cause her to change. Exactly. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on an artist quitting their day job to pursue the quote dreams in Hollywood? Be prepared. <laughs> Have a savings account. Do not quit until you have a savings account. However, um, what a lot of people don't know about Los Angeles is it's not the kind of place, unless you're in um, an industry that can transfer your job, like literally, you know, some people can, well, I'm working in the in, in Indianapolis office and I'll just ask them to transfer me to the Los Angeles office. That's not in every industry, but in some industries that exist. If you can do that, do that instead of quitting your job, right? Get transferred to that office or if you have a skill like let's say you're a paramedic then apply for some paramedic jobs out here so that you can have something to do while you're writing on the side i would not like because writers until you actually have your screenplays ready and you're going into meetings and taking meetings with people there's nothing specific that you're doing in the middle of the day so you can write at night like you're not like an actor where it's like i have to have a night job because auditions are during the day right so no matter where you are in your acting life if you come out to la you probably have to get a night kind of job or a part-time kind of job because you need to be available during the day period writers you don't necessarily need that right off the bat especially if you've never written anything or you don't have enough um uh, samples or anything yet then you won't need that so it's okay for you to have a job you just now have to be disciplined enough to write at night or write on the weekends even if you just give yourself an hour a day however long it's going to take if you do decide to quit and you say, well, I'll just get a job out in Los Angeles, please note what a lot of people don't know about LA is they're not going to hire you unless you're here. If you're getting hired into this industry. So if you're saying, well, I'm going to be an assistant or I'm going to be a PA or I'm going to, I don't know, do whatever it is you plan to do in this industry. If they call you for an interview, nine times out of 10, it's because they want you. They might say, see you tomorrow. And you're in Indianapolis. <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's like, it's a big risk, but you got to come out here first. Then you'll be able to get the jobs a little bit uh, more easily. Uh, not to saying that it is easy, but more easily than it would be when you're away. Because again, you're meeting people, you're around people, they can introduce you to people. And when they say, hey, can you come in for this interview? Or hey, can you start tomorrow? You can say yes, because you're physically here. I have seen, and it has happened to me, where I have been passed over because they're like, can you start tomorrow? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm moving you know, next month. 
And that's because people think like other industries, well, once I get the job, they'll give me a start date. It'll probably be two weeks from now or a month from now. And it's like, no, that's not how this industry works. Like they're on set right now. <laughs> they need someone to come in right now. So it's not one of those things where you can kind of be set up already before you get here. You got to get here and then apply. So that's why having a savings account is a really big deal. Um, it's also very expensive to live out here. So unless you have an, a roommate or somebody like that, be prepared. It's very, very expensive. So if you know that this is somewhere you want to come, at least give yourself a year or however long you need to get your savings account up before you get out here. You started your courses, your online courses, partly out of necessity too, right? You created your own job for yourself. Yeah, I did. Actually, I did. So I used to be a creative executive a decade ago. And I left that job to be a performing artist so I could travel the world. So I got to go to 19 countries, 48 states, had a great time. But within that decade, the industry continues on. So even though I was still working with writers to help on their screenplays, because they were contacting me, I wasn't contacting them, but people knew I did that. So they were like, hey, can you read this? Hey, can you see this? So eventually I made it into my side hustle. You know, when you're a performing artist, you're contract to contract. So when you're out of contract, you still have to be making money some kind of way. So I kind of used to do that on the side. So when I moved back here, I figured it'll probably take me a little while before I can get back into the industry and people know me and I can get where I need to go. So in the meantime, in between time, I gotta be able to be making some money. So why not take this skill that I have and people have been asking me to do this and turn it into my day job. And so here I am a year and a couple of months later and this is still what I do full time every day. That's great. Thank you. And, and do you think back to what if someone had offered you some easy job for the money and then maybe you would have taken it for the paycheck and then you wouldn't have developed this and your website? You know, I don't think I would have done that this time around. Um, when I came to LA this time, I've lived in LA three times. When I came to LA this time, I knew exactly what it is that I wanted. And I knew what the path was to get there. So I knew that I may have to take a job I didn't like in order to get into the right room. But if I thought that job wasn't going to get me into the right room, I would not have taken it. Would not have taken it. However, actually be, having the experience that I have is, is what keeps me out of the rooms. I'm usually seen as overqualified. So as much as I send out my resume, I don't have very many people who actually call me in for interviews. And for the jobs that I should be able to apply to, those are the who do you know kind of jobs. And so because I was gone for a decade, then I don't have access to those jobs either. So I'm kind of stuck in the middle. I'm overqualified for these jobs and I don't have access to these jobs. Okay, fine, so I'll start my own job. And here I am. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people probably would, would think, oh, that's a good problem to have, but it actually holds a lot of people back, mm -hmm. overqualified, overeducated. Mm -hmm. I've never had that problem, but, <laughs> but I know that uh, other people have, and mm -hmm. it can really hinder what you do. Yeah, definitely. So I could have let that get me down and you know move back to Texas, et cetera, but because I, at this age, know what my strengths and weaknesses are, and I know what I know, and I know what I don't know, this is what I do well. So I'm going to do this for myself until at some point someone realizes, oh, you have the actual, I mean, the exact skill that we're looking for in this particular position. And if that's something I'm interested in doing, I'll do it. And if it's not, I won't. I'll continue to do what, I, what I'm doing now. I've definitely, during that time of being a performing artist and having to take side jobs and random jobs, I've done enough things that I don't want to do. <laughs> I've had my share of it. I'm done with that. So now it's about being on, being on track. You know, well, that was my last question, and just the worst 
the worst job and I'm sure you won't mention the name, but then what happened and how did you leave it? Um, oh no, it was just, uh, I actually ended up writing a screenplay about it that placed in a couple of competitions last year, (laughs) but I was a sample lady, like in the grocery store. Oh yeah, I did that too. Yeah. Uh And people always assume that those people work there. And it's like, no, I didn't work here. I didn't work there. I was hired by a company to right. come in and do it. Yeah. And it was really frustrating because people didn't want my samples. They just kept asking me questions about stuff in the store. And I didn't know anything about stuff in the store. So uh-huh. my screenplay that I wrote ended up being about, but what if this was the only thing you had? Like for me, sure, I could have, again, been a teacher, <laughs> right? There's other, so I, I actually became a substitute teacher. So I still ended up doing what I had been fighting all that time. But I was like, as a substitute teacher, you get to at least choose your own schedule, right? You can decide to go in or you can decide not to. So I did that. But I was like, but what if there was a person and all they had was this sample lady job? Like, that's it. Right. Now, what's their story? So I ended up writing a screenplay called Truffle Sauce because that's what I was selling. (laughs) Did you find that everybody told you like their life story, like their secrets? Oh, yeah. They wanted to come and talk to me and do everything but taste the truffle sauce. Thank you. That's what, yeah. (laughs) They would say, I don't want this. Wait, do you work at Costco too on the weekend? No, I don't. No. But then I would end up hearing very personal stories and they just, because they knew I was safe. I was a yeah. stranger. They probably would never, never see, see me again. again. And um, mm-hmm. it was actually really interesting to interact yeah. with people. It was the most frustrating job for me. I was like, I'll never do this again. Even though I probably did it like one or two more times. I think I did it like three times. And I was like, okay. I'm done. Guess I'll just substitute teach. The health department threw away my samples. <gasps> I don't know. It was a must. She must have been like new or looking for a higher position. Yeah. She came in, looked at other stuff, and then she saw my table and just said, "Throw them in the trash." Wow. She said they'd been sitting out too long. Maybe yeah, she maybe did me a favor. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Possibly. 